0: It would be true to say that Jesus is the most misunderstood person in all of history. It goes without saying that those that don't believe, don't believe he is God. And that takes away half of his identity right there. That's a misunderstanding. But the the problem isn't so much with those that don't believe as much as with those that believe. We also have a huge misunderstanding of who Jesus is at different, le- different levels within the church. And I don't mean different denominations or different streams. I mean us as individuals within the church. We each have a different understanding that is a growing understanding, hopefully, to come to the fullness of understanding who really Jesus is. And last week I shared with you that Jesus has two natures. And uh, he has a divine, in other words, he is fully God, nature. And he has a human, in other words, he is just like you and me. And in his humanity, he experiences everything we experience from a cut to a bruise to a bloody nose to a hungry stomach to mortality. He went through all of that. And there's that's easy for us to accept. But the challenge becomes when we try to understand which of his natures did what when he was on earth. And that's where the big misunderstanding is in the church. A lot of us think that Jesus is God. Yes, hallelujah, amen. And because Jesus was God, he was able to do all the miracles that he did because he is God. Well, maybe. And it's true. He did them by the power of the Spirit. So in a sense, we can say he did them because of his, not deity, but connection to deity. Maybe we can put it that way. But maybe that's stretching you a little bit. So let's let's keep going, and we'll see what we're talking about. He is one person with two natures. He's one person. He's not this uh, double personality person, where he walks the earth in the physical form, but he's possessed by a spirit. He's not that. He is 100% human, and he is 100% God in entirety at the same time he doesn't flip-flop today i'm going to go out as god and and do some miracles tomorrow i'm going to be human and get hungry uh the next day i'm going to be god again and raise a dead person uh the day after that you know he doesn't look at his schedule and does that he is fully both entirely all the time and they don't mix those two don't mix They don't mix over each other, but they are together in him. So, I shared some verses with you, and uh, if you recall, I had you take your phones out and scan this thing and download the Bible app. If you haven't done that yet, this is a great opportunity. Do that right now. Download this Bible app. It's free. It is one of the most downloaded apps in the App Store or in the Google Play Store and uh, it has wonderful features. It allows you to read the Bible and sometimes even if the translation has speech, I'll move out of your way so you can do that. If the translation has been narrated, you can listen to that translation live, not live, but uh, as you read it. And uh, it has multiple languages and multiple interpretations or translations. It's very powerful, it allows you to highlight, it allows you to memorize. I told you last week I was gonna tell you about a memory tool, a memory app, I'm gonna hold off on that. So, everybody good with the scan? You don't need that anymore? Okay, so let me share a little perspective before I go on and talk about the humanity of Jesus. Jerusalem, the old city, Uh, Is made up of this bound, walled city. And this is one of the most contested pieces of real estate on the planet. It has multiple gates. Here's the Jaffa Gate. Here's the New Gate. Here's the Damascus Gate, Herod's Gate, down here... We have the Golden Gate, this is the gate that Jesus, or the Messiah, is supposed to enter. Uh, This is the Dung Gate, the Zion Gate. The Dung Gate is where they took out all the waste from the animals and other things. All throughout, it is divided in multiple quarters. So this is the Christian quarter. This here is the Arab quarter. This area here is what's called, depending on who you are, Jews, some Christians call it Temple Mount, because this is where the Temple of Solomon used to sit. It is now called the, depending on who you are, there's the Dome of the Rock, and there is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And down here is the Jewish Quarter, and down here is the Armenian quarter. Interesting. So every time anybody prays, as the scripture instructs, for the peace of Jerusalem, they're actually, without even knowing it maybe, praying for the reconciliation and the peace of these four people groups. That's interesting, isn't it? The sons of Abraham, Isaac's Isaac's sons, the, the Jews, Ishmael's sons, the Arab, those that are adopted by faith, the Christians, and then there's the Armenians. Anyway, it's interesting. The Armenian quarter is actually under a lot of contention right now because some Jewish organizations are trying to buy part of the land and repossess it, as it were, for Jewish use. And uh, there's a lot of stuff in the news right now about the legality and the illegality of a land lease, a 99-year land lease for a parking lot somewhere in here. And uh, it's, it's just a mess. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the scripture tells us. They will prosper that love thee. So if you want to prosper, here's a Bible promise that you can follow. Pray for the peace of this property, this piece of land, this land that the Bible calls the city of the great king, not just the city of the king. We just finished singing. We raise up our hands to worship you, you king of kings. So, this is his city. This is the city of Jesus, the city of peace, Jerusalem. And now, this actually, scripturally, we can liken it to us. We can liken this city to each one of us in the sense that it has a border. Our bodies are defined, it has borders, and it's designed to possess the temple that the king of kings, the God of all creation, is intended to dwell within. Very much like you and me. We have different gates. Some of these gates are our senses, our eyes, our mouth, our ears, our taste buds, our touch, and we receive information in and out and it has a place where the presence of God, the temple, was there and it's supposed to be filled with the glory of God just like you and me. And in this city, right in here, there is what's called the Temple Institute. And the Temple Institute is a research body. It has nothing to do with the city itself. It just happens to have positioned itself there because these were people, Jews and Christians, that wanted to study the temple that God had instructed Solomon and David, Solomon was David, King David's son, God gave instructions as to how to build this temple with the measurements, with the objects within it. And within that, each of these elements of the temple represent something symbolic for us to understand. Now, The Bible, why I make such a big deal asking you to download the app and read the Bible and memorize the Bible is because the Bible is the revelation, the unveiling of God, his mind, his heart, his relationship with us humans. Some people call it the instruction manual. I don't think that's just it. It's not about how the machine works, us. It's about the maker and how he loves us. All of that is in the Bible. And within the temple, we find the same kind of thing, where the elements of the temple express things to us about the nature of the one who is to dwell in the temple. So far, so good? Any questions? I'm going to hit the brakes here. Any questions on any of this stuff? So far. We good? Okay. So, this temple institute has actually modeled and built their idea is that before the messiah returns to israel to rule in jerusalem the temple has to be built and ready for him to enter into that temple to be presented as the eternal sacrificed lamb that was slain is now living so they're trying to prepare for that and as a matter of fact we've been told i think it's common knowledge that there is prefabricated pieces stones that have been cut why because the bible says that when the messiah comes and the temple is built that you're not going to hear the stone chiseling away so they have pre-cut all these stones numbered them with barcodes so they know exactly how to refit this temple together and they have prepared all the elements that are going to go into it so at the sound of god's voice to say put up the temple, and that politically is a disaster waiting to happen. Because this property here, Temple Mount, where the temple is supposed to go, is under control of Jordan on behalf of Islam. And that's why Jews are not allowed up here to pray. If you happen to be a tourist walking around on top of Temple Mount, which you're allowed to do, and you look like you're praying like a Jewish person would pray. Okay? If you're bobbing and and doing anything that looks like someone Jewish praying, they freak out. We were there, and we had some Chinese believers with us, and this one leader, he was one of the top five leaders in China that lead the house church movement in China, which is the underground church. These leaders have in their systems, in their family if you will, millions of believers. He came, and it was his first trip to Jerusalem, and they have this deep, deep love for Israel, the land, the people, and Jesus, obviously, and the temple being rebuilt. As a matter of fact, in China, there's a movement called "Back to Jerusalem." And they are preparing and sending missionaries walking. Across the nations, from China, all the way back to Israel, to Jerusalem, to bring the gospel back to Jerusalem. Some of them get killed along the way. Some of them go through Muslim nations and evangelize. The point is, they are committed to seeing this prophecy being fulfilled about the city of the great king. So we were there, and we happened to be walking in this area, and then we were led down to the Golden Gate. And this Chinese leader goes down to the Golden Gate. Let's say this is the gate. I don't know if you can see me online. if Yeah, you can. Let's say this is the gate. And he goes down and he puts his hand on it and is praying. And some of the leaders and the security saw him do that. And they were very upset. They started yelling, he's Jewish, he's Jewish, get him out of here. Because Jews are not allowed up there to pray. Now that is changed. And on special feast days, people of Jewish faith are allowed to go up there, but it's very contentious. They're both cousins. One is children of Abraham by Ishmael, the Arabs, and the other are the children of Abraham through Isaac, the Jews, but they are so contentious with one another because they all want to claim hold to the promises and what they mean. So up here, The temple is supposed to be rebuilt. And let me tell you something funny. This golden gate, one of the caliphs at the time of Islam occupying the city of Jerusalem, this is pre-1948 when Israel took over, excuse me, when Israel was established as a nation and pre-1967 war when Israel won through battle this entire area. They came all the way to the Western Wall, but they didn't get a chance to climb up there and take that. So right now, this area here, Temple Mount, is under the jurisdiction of the state, the kingdom of Jordan that is acting as a steward for that area. So when one of these caliphs, in other words, the leader of the Muslim nation, the nation of Islam, heard that the plan is that Jesus or the Messiah, the Messiah they didn't relate it to Jesus, is supposed to come through the golden gate, he decided that according to Jewish law, any man that touches a dead body becomes defiled and cannot enter into the presence of God. So the best way to defile the Messiah is to put a cemetery here. And that's what he did. They sealed up the gate and the gate is actually sealed up with rocks and, and like blocks of stone, bricks. And they sealed up the gate and put an entire cemetery here. It's a Muslim cemetery. So the way that they've done it is that the head is towards the wall. If this is the gate, the head is down here and the feet are up there. And the idea is that as Mehdi in Islam, there is a Messiah-like figure. When he comes and he's supposed to come into here. When he comes, all the Muslims will rise and face him. So they're lying down this way, so they will rise. That's on this side. And this is called uh, the Kidron Valley. On the other side of this valley, there's another cemetery. And that is a cemetery of the Jews. And their faith is when Messiah comes, he's going to come into the city of Jerusalem. So they're lying the other way. Their heads are on on the east, their feet are on the west, so they will rise and come in with him. Amazing faith. Don't knock it. They they have a faith. It may not be founded on exactly the right things, but they have a faith. So, the Bible Institute has created all of these elements to build the temple. And one of these elements is this object called the menorah, it is a seven lamp, lamp lampstand. It's supposed to be made out of one piece of gold, hammered. And it's supposed to have these eyelets at the top that look like almonds. And they are to be, it's supposed to be filled with oil and lit up. And it's sitting there ready. I don't know if you can see that. It says the golden menorah was re, uh, recreated for the first time since the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD according to the research conducted by the Temple Institute, and it was donated by Mr. Vadim Rabinovich. We saw it, it's huge. It actually, look, I don't know if you can see it here a little bit better. You can see the Alaksa Mosque in the background. It's just south of there, southeast, southwest of there. And you can see it, and you can see some people standing here. So you can see its magnitude, it's large. So, this thing is real. And uh, in Rome, uh, King, uh, I think it was uh, Titus, one of the uh, emperors, uh, the Caesars, had actually had an archway carved to commemorate the stories of the Bible. And one of them, you can see the menorah here. And the, the Jewish people carrying it as they were carrying it to get it to the Next phase, and this is during the time of the tabernacle where the temple was not built and it was portable. Notice something about this thing there's a center shaft, there's a center bulb or a center lamp, and then there is three, if you will, sets or two, two, two arms to each side. It actually is a very prophetic picture, it is supposed to indicate that the people of the covenant that have this menorah are supposed to be a light to the world, number one. It is the only object that lights the tabernacle or the temple in the area called the holies. That's where there's the showbread, there's the altar of incense, where prayer happens, and the priest starts to go in there and trim the candles. And if you remember the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, the mother and father of John the Baptist, it was his turn to go in and to trim the candles when the angel appeared to him and told him about Elizabeth being pregnant. And he had an argument and the angel shut his mouth for nine months. Remember that? Okay, so this actually tells us an amazing story. It matches the seven feasts that God gave the nation of Israel. You with me so far? And the seven feasts, the first feast that people celebrate according to the word of God, the first feast, the first calendar. Do you remember what the first month was? When was the first month given to Israel? When was the calendar given to Israel? When? Where were they? They were still in the land of Egypt. They were slaves, and God spoke to Moses and gave him a calendar, and He said that this is the calendar that you will follow. It is not what we think today. Another misunderstanding. We think of that calendar as being the Jewish calendar. It's not. It's the calendar of God. And it's the calendar that God has given the nation of Israel to follow and for us to understand again, just like the Bible. He is, we're supposed to understand the heart and the mind of God according to all his purposes through revelation, through understanding. So, the first feast that he gave them, was on the 14th day of the first month when he told them, Go and slay a lamb, kill a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, and put its blood on the doorposts. What we call that is Passover because the angel of death was coming through and passing through all of Egypt, killing the male firstborns, the firstborn males. So that is the first feast. On the other side of that, the first feast. It's indicated by this in the menorah. On the other side of that, we have a feast called Tabernacles. And Tabernacles is when, if you remember, sometime during the year, near, near the fall, there is a feast that we celebrate, that we see people of Israel celebrating, and they build booths. If you're coming down Bayview on the... Sorry. If you're coming down Bayview at the time of the Feast of the Tabernacle, you'll see a synagogue just up the street here, and they have a big booth in the backyard, in the parking lot. And the idea is that this is God dwelling with us. God with us. So look at this. Here we have the Feast of Tabernacle, uh, the Feast of uh, Passover, where the blood is applied to the doorpost. And here we have the feast, and these are exactly the two ends of the calendar year. They're seven months apart. On this light, and they're all lit at the same time in the the temple at all times. But here we find the matching feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what he wants to do. In your and my life, when we receive the Passover lamb, Jesus, he actually comes and dwells in us. He dwells in our home. He tabernacles with us. Interesting. What about the other feasts? Well, the next feast is the feast of, they celebrate right together, the feast of unleavened bread. These are days apart in the beginning of the first month. And the feast of the unleavened bread is supposed to signify the purity of this thing, this unleavened bread. And this unleavened bread is actually a type. And all of this is a type of Jesus. And here we see the atonement of his dying. And here we see the purity of his humanity and his deity in one. And here, this is the feast of the unleavened bread, and it's matched on the other side with the feast of atonement. What is the feast of atonement? Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the high priest goes into the presence of God, and he... Atones for an entire nation. Here the unleavened bread is coming in and it's indicating the purity of the sacrifice and here the sacrifice is for the salvation of an entire nation. The priest goes in on behalf of individuals and on behalf of the nation. Interesting how it's still being matched. And then we have on, the, on, in the, uh, on this one here we have the first fruits. And these are on the calendar exactly like that. So we start with the Passover, we go to the unleavened bread, and then we go to the first fruits. And that's when the people of Israel were supposed to come and bring with them an offering to God of first fruit harvested from their plants, or first animal born, and they would bring it and present it to the Lord. And that is exactly what happened. Jesus was sacrificed, he was the unleavened bread, take this as my body, eat, this is my blood shed. And then he was resurrected. He was the first fruit. And he was raised from the dead. Was he raised from the dead as God? Did he die as God? Did he shed his blood as God? No. He did all of that in his humanity. Yes, he had deity. Yes, he was divine. But it was his human person, his his human Part of his nature, his human nature that had to go to the cross. Why? Because he was the perfect sacrifice on behalf of us, the rest of the humans. So here we see the unleavened bread. There's one more feast, I'll come back to that. But on the other side of that, if we continue, priest one, two, three, four, five, feast five is the feast called trumpets, or what we call Rosh Hashanah where they blow the trumpets all over the place, they blow the shofars, and they celebrate the new year. This is about six months apart. But I thought the first month was when the Passover was happening. Yes, that's the spiritual first month, the first month of the calendar that God gave them. But they celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, and the Feast of Trumpets, in the same way that he dwells in us, And the same way that he atones for us as individuals and as nations, there will be a trumpet that will blow and we will be caught up with him. So, but for all of these things to fit together, there is something that ties them together. What the work of Jesus was on the cross, what the work of Jesus is in his covenant people, us together, there's something in the middle that connects it. And there's another feast right in the middle of this whole seven-month calendar. And it's a feast called Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And today, all across the church, we're celebrating Pentecost. And it's that that makes it all work. It is that that Jesus and his humanity worked hard to fulfill. He said, I'm going to do all of these things. In John 13, he tells them, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to leave, I'm not going to leave you alone, I'll send you another, the Comforter, who is going to come, and when you have been baptized, John the Baptist said, the one who is after me is worth more than I am, he is greater than I am. I baptize with water, he will baptize you with uh, with fire and with spirit. And Jesus promised them, wait in Jerusalem until the promised one comes. Then you will have power to be my witnesses. We worship the kings with our hands lifted high, and they'll know. When they ask us, we'll tell them, we're worshiping our king. So here, this is like, as it were, everything hinges on this. This Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes, and covers the church and does something very special to the individuals and the the collective of the church. But wait. When first Jesus was raised from the dead and he came into the upper room, John 20. In your app, you can go to it and read it. In John 20, he comes in, he says, peace upon you. And then John records that he breathed on them and he said to them, to the disciples, the ones that were there, Receive the Holy Spirit. Tabernacle. That's not what we're talking about with Pentecost. The indwelling, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your in my life happens the instant that we believe and receive the salvation from Jesus. We get filled We receive a new nature. Wait. So Jesus, who was divine and human, who had two natures, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. He was born with the Spirit of God in him. He functioned with the Spirit of God in him. He was not confused about his deity and his humanity. And now he's done something very unique in all of history where he breathes on the disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And we call that being born again, unless, Jesus said, unless a person is born of the Spirit, they will never enter or see the kingdom of heaven. Now he's made it possible for us sinful humans to be a little bit more like him, to receive the Spirit so that in our fallen humanity now, we become tabernacles and temples of God's Spirit in us. We become more like Jesus. We become the households, the housing, the the tent of the presence of God in each one of us. Does that make us divine? No. It makes us adopted. We are grafted in. We receive God's spirit in us. Does that make us little Jesuses? We're his brothers and sisters. We've been adopted. In the map, there were the physical sons of Abraham, the Arabs and the Jews. And then there was the church quarter, the Christian quarter. Those are the ones that you and I have been grafted in, have, possessed the, have been possessed, have been filled, have been infilled by the presence of God, the Spirit in us. It's a weird thing to understand. And we have a lot of misunderstanding about this. We confuse this tabernacling presence of God in our tent we confuse that with what happened at Pentecost and we say that that's when the church was born yes it is the church was birthed by power to become baptized next week we're going to baptize people we hope that when they go into the baptism their mouths and nose are closed so that they don't swallow any water that's baptism it's on the outside. Their bodies are going into the water. The water is not supposed to go into their bodies. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is when we are baptized into the Spirit. We're, you know, It's like we're being dunked into him. Why is that so strange to understand for us sometimes? Jesus, when he prayed to the Father, he says, I and you and you and me. He and the Father were like that with one another. He was as it were, baptized. He was dunked into the Father. In, from the very beginning, he was always that way. And the Father was in him. It's easy for us to think of the two of them like, that's, it's not easy. We don't even understand what that means. But the two are inside one another. And that's what he wants to do with us. He wants us to be filled with his Spirit when we're born again, He wants us to be topped up daily. But he also wants us to be baptized, immersed into his spirit. And this is what the linchpin right here represents. This is the one thing that all of these hinge on. And the design was not by random choice. God built it that way, gave Moses the exact method of building this thing. It's supposed to be of one piece of gold hammered so that they are connected and you know it could have been just one line and shafts but no they're arms and they're arms because they are bookends to the whole story the one end of the feast to the other end of the feast and in the middle there is this one that stands unique so when we look at Jesus in his humanity Jesus was fully human. The New Testament affirms that to us. He was born of Mary. There was a placenta that had to come out after his birth. Let me be very graphic here so that we get it. The Bible doesn't record that, but if there was a pregnancy, there had to have been something in the womb. Right? Any doctor will tell you, the birth is not complete until the full placenta comes out, otherwise the mother can hemorrhage. Okay, well, Mary didn't hemorrhage. She had other babies. Jesus had brothers, James and others. And the Bible is very clear on that. So let's look at some scriptures that make that a little bit more real for us. Turn with me in your apps to Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord himself, God himself, will give you a sign. The virgin, we call that today immaculate conception. But that's not the best word for it, but anyway. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Remember the menorah? The Passover lamb on one end? What was the other end? Tabernacles. God with us. Mary was the first to allow her body to experience a pregnancy, she was the only to experience a pregnancy where God was with her, in her. He was birthing something in her womb. The humanity of Jesus. He was called Emmanuel. Isaiah, again in chapter 9, puts it this way. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulder and he will be called wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a human person. This is not just God coming from heaven. This is a physical human being. Micah 5 gives us a different perspective. Therefore Israel would be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son And the rest of his brothers returned to join the Israelites. He was born. He was physically born. Jesus is fully human. The New Testament affirms that. And as a human, this is so precious. He understands our human condition. He understands weakness. He understands strength. He understands pain. He understands loss. He understands death when he lost his best friend, uh, Lazarus. He understands the request of a mother that is untimely. Anybody has a mother that requested anything from you that's untimely? Mary comes to him and says, they're out of wine. Can you do something about it at the wedding? But he made it timely. But he understands betrayal. He understands abandonment. He understands misunderstanding. He understands every experience. He understands every temptation. He understands every emotion in his humanity. You know, I suspect that God understood all of that as God but he sent us himself in a human form for us to understand that he understands God understood all of these things he made us to be able to contain them but Jesus now comes and stands next to us and says hey sister, hey brother I've been through that Bible says that he was tempted in all ways that we are tempted. Some of you may think that means being tempted sexually, being tempted financially, being tempted whatever other way. But it's in every way. He was tempted to kill someone. In every way he was tempted. If that's a temptation that hits humanity, he was tempted in that. I'm sure when he went into the temple and saw all the money changers, his anger rose up. Not just as God, but as a human who was upset about the situation. God was always angry with that, but he didn't do anything about it. He watched, he ached, he wanted to correct it. We misunderstand it into thinking that that was God coming in and God's rage surfaced. That was in his humanity, Jesus did what he did. You think God bled when he was being lashed with the whip? That was his humanity. That was his human suffering. Scripture says that he learned and he was perfected through obedience. Does God need perfection? And in his fully understanding our humanity, because of his humanity, the writer of Hebrew puts it this way. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He did not sin. Some would misunderstand that to mean that he he was God. He couldn't sin. That would make the temptations pointless. That wouldn't be a test. If it was supposed to be real, if it meant something, in the balance of justice, in the balance of righteousness, if the temptations that Satan presented Jesus with were to be taken as legitimate, He had to have been able to fall. He had to have been a person capable of sin. But the Bible tells us that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So Jesus couldn't have been tempted in his divinity because you can't tempt God. He's perfect. He was tempted in his humanity. The Bible says that he emptied himself of his divinity so that he can live in his humanity and demonstrate what life is as a human who has victory. So Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Jesus shows us, shows to us, God in a way that we can understand him. He paid the price in his death for all of sin, all of humanity, as a human. God didn't need to send Jesus to die if he was going to pay the price out of his own pocket. It had to have been something different. It had to have been a human to atone for human sin. A human needed to die for humanity to be saved. And the Bible says, whoever believes, he gave the authority to become children of God. Now, I told you this whole thing lynches on the menorah. This whole thing hinges, I said lynches, hinges, it's the linchpin, it hinges on the centerpiece of the menorah, the baptism of the Spirit. Because at the end of it all, when he came to his disciples, he says, when I leave, you're going to do these things. Go heal the sick, go raise the dead, go baptize and disciple nations. But if he did all his miracles as God, we really don't have any hope that we can do anything great like he did. But he promised them this, greater things you will do than I have done because the Father will send you the Spirit. You will be my witnesses. You will have power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes. On the day of Pentecost, that's what happened. So I want to encourage you. The misunderstanding that we have about the miracles of Jesus, and I'll speak a little bit more about that in the next few weeks. The miracles of, of Jesus were not performed by God. They Proved that God was with him. That's what the people that observed it saw. That no man can do these things except God is with him. They proved that he had deity-like character or, or, or ability. But they were opening the door for something else. They're opening the door for our imagination to be shifted from the limitations of our sinful inabilities to be opened up into the abilities that God wants to inhabit his church with. He wants to give us the ability to do the impossibles. He wants to give us the abilities. And he has done that through the Holy Spirit. That's why this menorah, with the atonement from sin from the Passover, and the inhabitation of the the tabernacling with us in his presence, from the unleavened bread to the atonement that happens in an entire population From the first fruit to the trumpets that we're waiting for. And you know, I think that there's going to be multiple trumpets. There's going to be multiple unveilings, multiple revelations. There is going to be one big one where we are caught up with him in the heavens. But there's going to be trumpets that will allow nature to see the unveiling of the sons and daughters of God in this moment, in this time. Creation is groaning, waiting for the unveiling of the sons and daughters of God that have understood who they are. And they're called sons of God, by the way. Daughters of God. They're not just sons of humanity. Something has happened to these humans that have been now filled with the presence of God, baptized with His Spirit, to step out of the inferiority and the the weakness and the incapability into the impossibility. We step into the place where as we speak things, they happen. And I'm not saying do that out of a prideful place, but do it out of a place of surrendering to see the kingdom of God manifest on this earth at this time the way he intended it to. We don't just pray it, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and not believe it. We believe it, we step into it, we receive the baptism of the spirit so that we can step into it and see the fulfillment of it. Do you want that or do you want to live like a caterpillar on the ground with limitations i can only move so fast i will never be able to accomplish these big things that jesus did because he was jesus and i'm not he said greater things you will do than i did don't cheapen his word step into it allow your transformation to happen allow your go through your cocoon and come out on the other end as a butterfly. You're not meant to be a caterpillar. You're meant to be flying in the heights and causing shifts. You know what the butterfly effect is? A bunch of butterfly flutters the wing in one nation and there's something else that shifts somewhere else. That's prophetic. The butterfly effect is not that. Look it up. We'll come back to that. But, do you want to step into that or not? Let's stand. Father, you have given us so much. Jesus, you have laid out the plan so clear. When we hear it, when we see it, our spirit jumps. Our mind doesn't understand, but our spirit is excited Lord, where our mind still lags, may your spirit within us, joined with our spirit, cause faith to rise to meet the unbelievable that you are making our experience happen. Lord, we don't understand all of it. Even as I explain it, I'm only skimming the surface of what you know about it. So Father, today on this day of Pentecost, I pray for one more outpouring across the globe, across your church. We join others that are praying for this across the globe, but we also pray for it for us here. That we today would be baptized in your Holy Spirit. In person here and online, that there is an outpouring of your Spirit over us that would elevate us from the place that we have always been. To be the people that you intend us to be. To dream big dreams. To see them come about. To not be satisfied with the mundane and the everyday. To not be satisfied with just praying for healing and not ever believing that it will happen, but to have the faith and the authority to speak it, and it would happen. Lord, you have so much in store for us. Pour your spirit on each one of us right now. As I scan the room, Lord, pour your spirit. Pour your spirit. Just open your hands and just receive. Hold your hands as a bowl and just receive what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you. As He comes over you, be filled, be baptized, be immersed, be overflowing with His filling, both inside and out. Holy Spirit, just do your work among us. I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.